So over the last um, number of months, uh, I've been wrestling with something. And, <clears throat> excuse me. I've been wrestling with the question of what does it mean to worship God? There's been a number of things that have fed into that wrestling. Um, one of them was actually returning to the role of leading worship on a regular basis here at St. Paul. Um, that's, that's something I haven't done for a number of years, being a regular worship leader. Um, another aspect of that has been some struggles I've been having with um, some things I've been seeing in contemporary worship, which, um, yeah, I've been just struggling with. Don't worry, though, we're not going to get into worship wars in this message. That's, um, that's not where I'm going with this. So when Mark asked me to preach and didn't actually give me a, a text to preach on, uh, that's always a challenge to me. It's like, what should I preach on? What should I preach on? Anyway, um, he didn't give me a challenge, didn't give me a text to preach on. Um, my heart went immediately to this topic of worship. Now, at first, I thought I would speak on Revelation 4 and 5. So Steve was perfectly, perfectly right. <laughs> I had said to him that, um, and he had picked his picked the songs on the basis of that. that. But um, after saying that, I changed. Yeah, things went differently. I mean, those those are great passages. Um, Revelation four. They may, they may be the two greatest themes in worship. Actually, Re- Revelation four is worshiping God as Creator and Sustainer, and Revelation five is worshiping God as Redeemer. And uh, we'll be talking, as Mark said, we'll be talking about Revelation 4 on Wednesday night. And um, no pressure about lifting people up into the, into the heavenlies. Okay, well, yeah, you can pray for me as well. <clears throat> but the more I thought about it, the more I re- reflected on it, the more I kept getting drawn back to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which is just read for us. And I realized that part of that is because the other, other passages of Scripture give us great pictures of great examples of corporate worship. And that's what Revelation 4 and 5 are. They're the angels and the living creatures and the elders all worshiping the, 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 the Lord. And in the Psalms, we have all kinds of examples of personal worship. Um, Romans 12, however, tells us what worship is. And it's actually a lot bigger than we often think of it. Now, I've been a worship leader for almost as long as I've been a Christian. In fact, I learned to play the guitar in the 70s so that I could um, help with what in those days were called praise choruses. Um, It wasn't actually until the late 80s that people like me started being called worship leaders. So I've been involved in corporate worship for in one form or another, for over 40 years. Marilyn and I met when we were part of a creative ministry team that took worship and music and dance and drama onto the streets of Amsterdam and other cities in the Netherlands and other cities in Europe as well. When we were in Pakistan, I produced three cassettes of worship music for Afghan believers. I didn't, produce the, I didn't make the music, I just produced the cassettes, but I was involved in that. And I've taught and I've preached on worship in various places at various times. 
But in all that time, I've never actually preached on this passage. Particularly on verse 1, where it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I think I've spoken about the why of worship. And I talked about that a little in Advent when I preached on Zechariah's song and about worshipping God because of who he is, his character, and because of what he's done, his acts. And I've spoken on the content of corporate worship, what we say in our songs and our prayers or what we should be saying in our songs and prayers. Um, I've spoken on the on the how of corporate worship. Like many, um, when I lead worship or when I plan a worship service, I have in my head a picture of the Old Testament tabernacle, which is a wonderful um, structure for uh, thinking about how we approach God in worship. But as I've reflected on this topic over the last few months, I've come to the conclusion that we've actually narrowed worship down to something much less than what Paul says it is here. He calls us to offer our bodies, our whole lives, as a living sacrifice to God. He says that is our true and proper worship. Not just what we do for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. So I'd like to take a little while, a little time this morning to unpack that a bit. So first of all, let's clarify what the word worship means. Now there's a there's a you know, there's a minor industry in Christian publishing, you know, at trying to answer that question. Um, what is worship? I've got no intention of jumping into that. Uh, but almost every book that was written on the subject, at some point or another, mentions an old English word, which is worthship, which is where we get our modern English word worship. And worship is a word from feudal honor societies of medieval England. And it meant giving a person their proper honor, which is why to this day in England and Wales, magistrates are in courts are referred to as your worship. And the lawyers give a little bow as they go in and out of the court. So it was chosen by the early translators of the English Bible because they thought it best communicated the, the sense of the Greek and Hebrew words behind it, that is giving honor to God. But it didn't start out as a religious word. It started out as a way of talking about appropriate behavior towards others, how you behave towards someone in order to show them that you value them. So here's a question. This is not a rhetorical question. I'm hoping somebody here can answer this for me. Okay? So where do we find the words, with my body I thee worship? The traditional Anglican marriage ceremony, the, the groom says to the bride, with my body I thee worship. That doesn't mean he's, involved, he's, he's engaging in idolatry. Okay? <laughs> it means that he will use his body to honor his wife. Okay? So that's, that's the kind of meaning that this word has. It's about honoring the other person. 
So the English word, at least, isn't just about the words we sing or the words we say or what we do in church. It's much bigger than that. It's about how we act. And that's because um, the root meaning of the Greek word here in Romans isn't about words. It's about work. Um, that's why some of the older translations, if you look in uh, older translations of Romans 12.1, it's translated as, this is your reasonable service. Because the Greek word in the Bible is rooted in the idea of a servant serving their master. So when we realize that what Paul is talking about here is, isn't just words, isn't just songs, it's about our whole service to God. It makes sense then for him to tell us to serve God with our bodies as living sacrifices. Of course, sacrifice is just another way of talking about worship. We saw that a few months ago in Hebrews 13, where the writer says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. That's what we usually think of as worship. But it goes on to say, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So worship is both about words and about works. Lips praise him and doing good. Because one of the ongoing temptations for us as Christians is to think of our lives as having two very separate categories. So over here, we have the spiritual category, the spiritual box. And into that, we put things like, you know, Sunday morning worship service, reading our Bible, praying, Wednesday evening Bible study. And over here, we have the other box. And into that, we put the job that we do all week, brushing our teeth, taking out the garbage, all the other stuff that's not spiritual, not spiritual, right? And there's a long history of thinking like that, going back at least to the Greeks. Um, so they tended to see the material world as less than the spiritual world. And they saw our bodies as prisons in which our souls were imprisoned until they were released at death to return to their true home. And Paul says, that's not how it works. We don't live a two-tier world. We don't live in a two-tier life where some things are spiritual and some things aren't. Everything we do is spiritual because we're spiritual beings. And everything we do is natural because we're part of the natural world. And that idea is right there in Genesis 1. (laughs) Okay? That's... At the, at the core of what the Bible teaches about what it means to be human. But Greek thought has had a big impact on the church. And so there's a tendency in some circles to spiritualize things, to make everything, you know, certain things to be more spiritual than others. But Paul's actually doing the opposite in Romans 12. He's naturalizing things. The NIV talks about our true worship. But in some translations, it says that offering the most natural part of us, our bodies, and by implication, what what we do with our bodies, offering our bodies is our spiritual worship. So what we do with our bodies is spiritual. So with that in mind, I want to suggest three different ways to apply this, okay? Okay. The first and most basic way is actually to do 
precisely what Paul says to do here, to offer up every moment of our lives, all that we do or say, as worship to God. That means that our work is worship. Whatever we doing, we, we do, you know, from nine to five or whatever every day is worship. It's something that can bring honor and glory to God. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 22 to 24, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So whatever you're doing, you know, Monday to Saturday, all day, whatever you're doing, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. Now, people in the ancient world thought that manual labor was demeaning, partly because it was associated with the body. And that's still the case today in many cultures. Uh, our hometown in Canada has a large Croatian population. And not so much now, but it used to be the case that Croatian men who worked in offices would grow their little fingernail really long to show that they didn't work a manual labor job. It was a point of honor that you weren't working in manual labor. But it's actually Christian teaching that has said that work has dignity. All kinds of work. has. Di- there is no such thing as work that you... A job does not give you dignity. It can give you dignity. A, go- a, a job cannot give you dignity. You can give a job dignity because you're made in the image of God and you're doing it. That's the way it works. It doesn't work the other way around. Okay? There are no jobs that can you know, raise you higher than where you already are as a child of God. That's the way it works, okay? So you can bring dignity to whatever you do. Benedict, who wrote the um, original rule for monasteries in Europe in the 5th century, made a point of having the monks. Many of the people don't realize this. Many monks actually came from upper-class families. Families where it would have been looked down upon to do manual labor. But according to Benedict's rule for monks... Not only did they study and pray, they also worked in the fields, in the, in the bakeries, um, all kinds of different areas. Uh, monasteries are renowned for making good wine, good brandy, and good beer. Um, so, <laughs> it's true. Um, people tend to think of monks as sitting around meditating and, pray, meditating and praying all day. Um, that isn't the case. They work really hard. Um, in fact, many of the things that we have we take for granted today, like hospitals and universities, even things like crop rotation and agriculture, those all came out of medieval monasteries. Much of our Western culture comes out of medieval monasteries. And part of that is because they saw that everything they did, from praying to singing to digging in the garden could be done as worship to God. One writer says, in the rule, which Benedict's rule of Benedict for monks, in the rule, which was written for laymen, not for priests, 
Prayer is referred to as the work of God. Prayer then is work, and work is prayer in the economy of monastic life. Instead of wondering how to squeeze prayer into the busy schedule of our work days, we can adopt a new vision in which all that we do is the work of prayer. We consecrate to God the whole cycle of the day, from rising and drinking our morning coffee to carpools and meetings and classes and household responsibilities until we crawl into bed. There's a very practical outcome of all of this, and that is, if you can't offer what you're doing as worships to God, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Now, I hope that after I've just said, you realize that the vast majority of our activities can be offered to God as worship. Even some things that some of our church traditions might frown upon. Um, after all, Jesus had a reputation amongst his enemies for going to too many parties, right? So I'm not suggesting that we um, you know, narrow down our lives into a, a few little spiritual things. That would defeat the whole object of this message, right? So clearly you can attend parties to the glory of God because Jesus did. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we need to always be consciously offering things up to God. But we can be work at being more aware of God, God's presence in everything that we do and everywhere we go. However, I do think there are some things that we cannot do to the glory of God. I remember when we lived in the red light district of Amsterdam um, many years ago. I remember having a conversation with a new believer who was struggling with some choices. And eventually he came to the conclusion that he had to quit his job since there was no way that working as a bouncer in a sex club could bring glory to God. Now, I don't think anybody here has that dilemma. If you do, come see me afterwards. <laughs> but there may be things that you're doing that you can't really offer up to God as worship. And I'm not here to tell you what those are. That's between you and God. So I encourage you to ask him that. Is there something I'm doing? some way I'm spending my time that is not glorifying to him, and then act on what he shows you. So we're to worship God with every moment of our lives, not necessarily consciously, but by doing all things that we have to do in a day in a way that glorifies him. A second way we can um, apply this is actually to set aside time every day to consciously worship God. That still fits into this category, right? I said that we can work at being more conscious of God's presence as we go through the day. A good way to do that is actually to set aside times during the day to just quickly remind yourself that you're walking in the presence of God. Going back to Benedict and his rule for monks, he laid out seven times a day when the monks would stop and consciously remember God in prayer and worship. Now, in evangelical circles, we've tended to boil that down to once in the morning and call it our quiet time. Now, I'm all for having a daily quiet time when we read scripture and we worship and pray. And if you're not doing that, let me encourage you to do so. Um, I was at a conference 
some, oh, right here. Um, and we, had a com we were having a conversation with some people in member care. And um, uh, one, of the, one of the member care workers was expressing his surprise at how, how many of the people that he had responsibility for on the field were not having a regular daily quiet time with the Lord. And that's basic to walking with the Lord. If you don't know how to start that, I'll just quickly give you a suggestion that um, was given to me when I was a young believer and worked really well. Um, read a short passage of scripture. The Gospels are great for that. Um, partly because you're reading about Jesus' life and partly because they're nice short little snippets. And um, then take what you've read and use it to worship God for some aspect of his character that you see in the passage. Then you can confess any sin that he brings to mind. You can thank him for the blessings he's given you. And then bring any concerns that you have for yourself or others to him in prayer. And if you need a way to remember that, um, that's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which the first letters of those words spell the word acts. And it's a great little um, system for having a, a quiet time. But over and above our quiet times, we can actually establish a rhythm of worshiping two, three, four, however many times a day. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't need music. Just a couple of minutes or so of turning to God and thanking him for his grace and his character. We live in a country that has a call to worship five times a day. That's what the azan is. We call it a call to prayer, but that translation goes back to a time when prayer was a much bigger word and included everything that we now call worship. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer is actually a manual on worship. Okay, So the azan is actually a call to worship. So here's a suggestion. When you hear the azan, you could just take a few moments to worship, to worship Jesus, to worship God for who he is and what he's done. Now, I recognize that some of you might have some questions about doing that. It might help you to know that our neighbor's practice of praying at set times through the day is borrowed directly from the Christians who lived in Arabia in the 7th century. It's our idea. Somehow or other, we've lost track of that, okay? They would ring bells at regular times to call people to prayer. If you want to talk more about that, you can see me afterwards. <laughs> so I've talked about offering up every moment of our day as worship, and I've talked about taking a few special moments in that time, each day specifically to worship God. And if we're doing those things, then when we come together on a Sunday morning to worship God as a body, we'll just be continuing what we've been doing all week. Only we'll be doing it together, which is what corporate worship should be. A community expression of individual lives lived out for the glory of God. N.T. Wright, one of the leading New Testament scholars of today, has a wonderful uh, statement on what corporate worship should be. He says, 
Worship was and is a matter of gazing with delight, gratitude, and love at the Creator God and expressing His praise in wise, articulate speech. Those who do this are formed by this activity to become the generous, humble stewards through whom God's creative and sustaining love is let loose unto the world. He has long sentences. I'll do it again. Worship was and is a matter of gazing with delight, gratitude, and love at the Creator God and expressing His praise and wise, articulate speech. Those who do this are formed by this activity to become the generous, humble stewards through whom God's creative and sustaining love is let loose into the world. And in that statement, he captures something that we often forget about worship. Worship is a two-way street. It isn't just about our glorifying God with our words and deeds. That's often the only thing we think about when we think of worship. Worship has or should have an effect upon us as well. Because you you become like that which you worship. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. When we worship God, we are, to use N.T. Wright's words, formed. It forms us to become the generous, humble stewards through whom God's creative and sustaining love is let loose in the world. Our goal in worship is to give God appropriate honor and praises for who he is and what he's done. But God has a goal in worship too. It's to make us more like himself. That's the point from his point of view. So we can be channels of his love into the world. As Paul says in the second half of today's passage, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Worship renews our minds by reminding us of who God is and what's important in the world. It realigns our lives with God's will. And it rebalances our our minds so we can do his will. Our daughter just moved back to Canada after living overseas for the last 13 years in South Africa, in the UK, and in Thailand. So she's experiencing her first Canadian winter in over a decade. God's grace to her. (laughs) A friend gave her a car, and the car came with snow tires. But when they put the car, the snow tires on the car, the steering began to shake and judder. And the faster she went, the worse it got. So she took the car into the garage. See, I say garage now rather than garage. Sorry about that, Vic. <laughs> and they rebalanced the wheels. And now the car runs smoothly and safely. It doesn't take a lot to rebalance wheels. I don't know if you've ever been there when they rebalance your wheels. They stick the wheel on a balance thing with a little bubble in the middle of it. And then they take little pieces of lead and they attach them to various places in the room to just get it balanced again. So it makes them run true without any wobble or shake. That's what worship does in our lives. It realigns our lives with God's purposes and character. Because as we go through life, 
our wheels get bashed. You know, we run into curbs and potholes and all those kinds of things just, just from life. And our, our lives, our cars, they start to get a bit shaky. You know, the, the steering starts to wobble. And if we don't deal with the shake, we can even end up running off the road. But taking time throughout the day to remember God and worship makes the small adjustments that are needed to keep us running straight. And joining together in worship on a Sunday on a weekly basis is like a regular service in your car, keeping everything running as it should. And all of it, all of it, is so that we can offer up every moment of every day in service to God, in worship to God. He deserves nothing less. Let's pray. Lord, we're here this morning to worship you, to give you appropriate honor and praise for who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we also lay our lives before you that you may change us to be more like you and better vessels of your love and grace to the world. Help us, Lord, as we go out from here to continue to be worshipers in every moment and every day, in what we do, in how we treat people. And also, Lord, help us to remember throughout our days to lift up prayers of thanksgiving and worship and praise to you that we might remember you in every moment. In your name we pray. Amen.